participants. Um, let's, uh, let's just take a minute and do just, just a little, little bit of review. Uh, thinking back to last week, you remember we're thinking about Hebrews um, as, as a sermon, okay? And um, so we're, we're listening to Hebrews, and, and we're sort of engaging Hebrews in the way that you would engage uh, a sermon. And this is the basic structure and outline that I gave us last week as we you think about Hebrews as a sermon. The title of the sermon is The Excellence of Jesus, or The, the Supremacy of Jesus, or The Superiority of Jesus. Um, and the text for the sermon is the first three verses of Hebrews, Hebrews 1 through 3, which we're going to spend a good bit of time uh, looking at this evening. This evening. And, and then the exposition or the unpacking of those verses follows this sort of three-point outline, point one, Hebrews 1, 4 through 2, 18, and I think this is in your in your outlines, um, Jesus is more excellent than the angels, and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit toward the end of the time uh, this evening. And then point two, Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 13, Jesus is more excellent than Moses and Joshua. And point three, Hebrews 4, 14 through 10, 18, Jesus is more excellent than Aaron and Melchizedek, and then Good preaching always has application. And so the last section of the letter, verses 19 of chapter 10 through the end of the letter, are essentially the application, the admonition, the encouragement. Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. And you remember we said last week that, that the letter seems to, seems to have been written because the folks who were receiving it were being tempted actually to withdraw and, and actually to revert and turn away from Jesus. So the admonitions, and, and you see little sprinklings of these admonitions throughout um, the, the exposition of the text, you see these ad, admonitions um, encouraging these readers to persevere, to persist, and, and to continue to to maintain their allegiance to Jesus, their commitment to Jesus, because he is more excellent than anything they've had an allegiance to uh, in the past. Um, but, it, but it really comes uh, to, um, to a kind of a, a focused application in the last part of, uh, of Hebrews with a whole bunch of examples, right? Chapter 11, um, the, the honor roll of faith, that, that list of people who, who, from the history of God's people, from the history of the church, um, are encouragements. And, and in chapter 12, verse 1, there's this reference to this great cloud of witnesses. And, and the kind of the image there is of these folks who have been referred to in chapter 11, along with a whole lot of others who have run the race, who fought the fight, who've persevered. You know, it's kind of like they're in the grandstands, right? Fight the fight, hang in there, keep going. And of course, the true all-star of the faith is Jesus, um, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, holding the shame of the cross in contempt, having contempt for the most contemptible thing 
that a person could experience in the Roman Empire, the shame of the cross. Jesus held that in contempt, uh, enduring the cross, despising its shame, because um, of his focus upon the joy um, that was set before him, the, the prospect, the joy of being restored to fellowship uh, with his father. So that's, that's sort of the, 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 the rationale for the letter, basic outline of the letter. What we want to do this evening really is sort of camp on this text, um, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, and, and really try to see um, the excellence of the Son through all of this language that, um, that the writer uses. Um, and Hebrews is not unique in this respect. Um, very often in, in an introduction or in the first verses of a letter, the author of that letter will, will sort of condense the things that will be talked about. So you get a kind of a preview of, of coming attractions, if you will. You get a preview of what's coming by paying close attention to those introductory verses. The, the best example of that probably is Romans chapter 1 and the first seven verses um, where uh, Paul really, really does set us up for what he wants to talk about in the rest of the letter. Just read, um, read these first six verses. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ." When you read those verses and then you think about how the the letter to the Romans flows, it really unpacks what Paul says in those first few verses. The focus of his attention is on the person of the Son and the work of the Son. Jesus is the gospel. Gospel is certainly about Jesus, but Jesus is the gospel of God. Jesus is the good news of God. And by the time you get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, it becomes pretty clear that Paul is concerned for his readers to understand that this gospel of God concerning Jesus, who is the Son of God, um, um, and who has been raised from the dead, this, this gospel is for the nations. It's for everybody. Not just one ethnic group, but, but it's for the nations. Well, you see a similar sort of thing, I think, happening in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 in these verses. I mean, these verses are just, there's a a seven-sermon series in these verses. Maybe eight, maybe ten, maybe 14. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in here to be kind of peeled back and unpacked and enlarged upon, which is going to happen through the rest of the letter. So here is basically what, what the writer uh, shows us concerning the Son. And it's interesting. This just sort of struck me uh, today. Um, it's interesting that 
that there are these seven, it's interesting, isn't it? These seven aspects of the excellence of Jesus. Okay? And we'll, we'll take some time with some of them, but just to, just to kind of summarize them, Jesus is more excellent as God's final revelation. That's verses 1 through the first part of chapter 2. Jesus is more excellent as God's heir. Jesus is more excellent as God's agent of creation. Jesus is more excellent as the exact image and glory of God, God's exact image and glory. Jesus is more excellent as God's agent of providence, upholding all things by his powerful word. Jesus is more excellent as God's agent of redemption, having made purification for sins. Jesus is more excellent as God's agent of rule. Jesus then, having made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And, and you know, now, I don't know, maybe I'm kind of making this up, but I don't think so. I mean, I think there is something to this, that not only in these ways in which Jesus is identified, but in the way this little introduction is structured with these seven sort of identifying features and characteristics, you know, the the writers of the Bible use numbers to reinforce things. To, 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 to constrain us with not only with words, but with images. And we're actually going to see that uh, a little bit later in the rest of chapter 1. Again, underscoring Jesus' superiority. Um, so, but here's where we start. Jesus is more excellent as God's final and perfect revelation. As God's final and perfect revelation. Revelation, um, and if you look at your um, you look at your outline, and if you've, uh, by the way, um, I spoke with Ruth, who is the book table Nazi, and she tells me that there are three volumes that have yet to be paid for. So. If, if one of those volumes might be in the front seat of your car or in your wife's purse or something like that, would you please see Ruth afterwards so that she can collect um, the, the 10 bucks, I think is what we're charging for this. Um, but if you, uh, if you did pick up a copy of this, um, this little commentary, up, oh, up, oh, there we go. Money's changing hands already. There we go. Sorry for that little public service announcement. That's all right. That's all right. Um, What he does, uh, what the writer does, is establish these contrasts in these opening verses. Um, Again, to to underscore the supremacy of Jesus, the excellence of Jesus as God's uh, final and perfect revelation. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And here are the contrasts, and I've I've, um, put them in the outline for you. Contrast number one, God spoke long ago. 
but now he has spoken in these last days. Okay, contrast number one. Contrast number two, God spoke at many times and in many ways. Now, what, what is the writer thinking about when he uses language like that? Well, he's thinking, he's thinking about the fact that God revealed himself across an extended period of time. Okay? And revealed himself not only at many times or across a long period of time, but in many different ways. Okay? Now, how, how did God reveal himself in the Old Testament? What are ways in which God revealed himself in the Old Testament? Dreams. Pillar of fire. Right? Words of prophecy. Doug, what did you say? Burning bush. Okay. In the creation. Certainly in the creation. Of course, he's still revealing himself in the creation, in, you know, in that sense. Okay. Pardon me? Sacrifices, right? The whole, the whole priestly system, pictures, right? Yeah, uh, uh, Isaac, right? Passover, the, the, the person of Melchizedek, okay? See, I mean, you see the diversity of God's revelation across the whole of that Old Testament period. Literal, verbal, meaning words, disclosures, words given to prophets, but then all of these pictures and images and dreams and, and the sacrificial system, the priestly system, all of this stuff, these are all ways in which God has revealed himself across this extended period of time. But in, this last, in these last days, right? So long ago, in these last days, at many times, in many ways, by his Son. Right? You see the contrast that's, that's, um, uh, that's there. Uh, contrast uh, number three, he spoke by the prophets. We've, we've alluded to that, uh, spoken of that. Uh, the prophets uh, were, were uniquely um, set apart to be the recipients of and the conveyors of the word of God. Okay? So there's a contrast between specifically the prophets and um, and the Son. And then contrast number four, God spoke to our fathers, but in these last days, he's spoken to us. Spoken to us in the Son. So you, you, you see this contrast that's established here uh, between the Old Testament period and now this New Testament period, this period um, that, has, that has arrived, okay? That has come. A couple of comments. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got this morning pretty fresh in my own head. Maybe it's not in yours, and that's fine. I'm not offended. Um, but just a couple of comments. Think about the difference that there is between prophets and the sun. Prophets, in a sense, are taken up into the presence of God to receive words from God. The Son, who is the Word, comes down 
into the midst of our world, bringing with him God's words for God's people. A um, number of passages that we can, that we can think about um, that underscore this. And um, John chapter 3, if you look at John chapter 3, verses 31 and following, This is just after John, um, in the earlier verses, verses 25 through 30, John identifies himself as, as the one who is witnessing to Christ. He says, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then verse 31, which is actually John's commentary on what um, John the Gospel writer's commentary on what John the Baptist has just said. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And you see Jesus actually using that very same kind of language other places in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. John 5.19, John 6.46, John 8.38. So Jesus is different from, distinct from and different from the prophets in that he, having seen and witnessed what he has seen and witnessed in the presence of the Father, brings that down into the midst of the earth, as opposed to the prophets who have to be taken up to take something and bring it back with them, if you will. Christ is the Word. And uh, John chapter 1, this great... um, prologue to the gospel uses this language. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 14, the word, the eternal word, eternally present with the Father, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father. So, you know, clear and very, very significant distinction between Jesus uh, and those who have gone before him, uh, the prophets. And then, um, and I'm actually going to preach from this passage this next week, Luke chapter 9, um, the transfiguration. You know, you know this story, Gee, I alluded to it this morning, Jesus took Peter and James and John, went up to the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, 
and his clothing became dazzling white. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, you probably know the answer to this. Why Moses and Elijah? Why would Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? The law and the prophets, standing as representatives of the law and the prophets, standing as representatives of the whole of the Old Testament, okay, which and law and prophets was one of the phrases that was used by Jews to refer to the whole of the Scripture, not just literal commandments, not just prophetic language, but the whole of the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah appearing um, with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, uh, verse 32, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. <laughs> Do you just love that? I mean, isn't that a Cecil B. DeMille kind of moment? They're asleep. But they become fully awake. They see his glory, the two men who are standing there, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was talking about. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, Listen to him. Listen to him. Why? Because he is the word of God incarnate. Because he is the true revelation, the final revelation of God. He is the one who fulfills everything that is anticipated, that comes to us through the whole of the Old Testament as represented by by Moses um, and Elijah. So, um, the, and, and this really, folks, this, I mean, this is the point of departure for this, really for, there's a sense in which this is a point of departure for who we are as Christians, is understanding the person of Jesus Christ as God's final and perfect self-disclosure um, and revelation of himself. Um, He is our authority. He is the one to whom we listen. And, um, you know, as we'll we'll see in just a minute, if, if you mess with what Jesus has revealed, if you mess with what God has revealed to Jesus and through Jesus to the church, you are messing in a very, very dangerous way with God himself. Okay. Let, me just, let me just take you to the, to the passage that I'm thinking about. Uh, the Revelation, the last verses, uh, chapter 22, verses 18 and following. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Woo. That's a booga booga moment. If anyone adds to the words of this book, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And 
that sort of warning is a warning that's um, not just present in the New Testament, it's present in the Old Testament as well. Um, warnings not to tamper with the Word of God, uh, not to alter the Word of God, take anything from it, add anything to it. Okay? Now, what does that say to you about so-called subsequent revelation? I mean, what does that tell you about the Book of Mormon? You, ouch. You know, it, that, it's a terrifying prospect to contemplate the implication of adding to or detracting from uh, the Word of God. I mean, this is where this hits home for me personally as a minister of the gospel. What's my responsibility as a minister of the gospel? My responsibility is to preach the whole counsel of God. And if I fail to preach the whole counsel of God, what am I doing? I'm taking away from the word of God in, very, in a very real and practical sense. I don't have the luxury of avoiding the difficult stuff. I don't have the luxury of camping on my favorite stuff and the easy stuff. As a minister of the gospel of Christ, I have a responsibility to proclaim the whole counsel of God to the best of my ability. Because if, if I don't, what, what's happening? I'm detracting from, I'm, I'm taking from the word of God. So, significant implication, I've sort of jumped, uh, jumped ahead a little bit, uh, significant implication of, of what it means for, um, for Hebrews to tell us that Jesus is the final and perfect uh, revelation of God. Um, here's, here's a second thing, second sort of um, implication that, that, that works, gets worked out in these contrasts. Um, and it's in the uh, it's in the um, it's in the notes under some implications. Number two, um, the birth of a new age. Okay, remember the new age movement, right? Well, you know that's borrowed capital. That's that's stolen capital. That kind of language belongs to us because we are citizens of the new age. The new age belongs to us. There's a um, there's a nice little passage, actually, in, um, in the commentary, pages 3 and 4. Let me just read this, uh, this paragraph. And it's under this, um, this um, contrast, long ago and these last days. These are descriptions of eras of divine self-revelation, phases in God's speaking to men. They are not just chronological references. Distant and recent would not be adequate substitutes for them, nor would then and now. The author's use of the demonstrative adjective these indicates that the first era is past and that the second has begun and is current. Don't you love that? The previous era is past, the first era is past, and the second has begun and is current. Long ago, 
but in these last days. Okay, now, here, here's, here's where I get to uh, where I get, to, I get to ping on something that's a kind of a, uh, a soapbox for me, okay? And it's this whole last days business, okay? Um, do I need to do this, or is it helpful for me to do this? I don't need to do this again? Okay, then I'll just give you the references. You know, I ask the question, when are the last days? Right now. Right now. When did the last days begin? With Jesus, back then, with God's final, perfect self-disclosure and revelation in Jesus Christ. That's when the last days began. That's what Hebrews says, in these last days. In these last days. What days is, I mean, he's writing sometimes, someone asked me the question last week, when was Hebrews written? I'm pretty sure it was written before 70 AD and before the destruction of the temple because there's so much reference and allusion in the letter, specific reference and allusion uh, to the temple and to sacrifices and all the rest. Um, So he's writing, let's say, 60 AD, long time ago, and is referring to those days as the last days. We have been in the last days since the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to his place of kingly authority. Here's a passage. You told me I didn't need to do this, so I won't do it for very long, but I am going to do it for just a minute. Here's here's another passage, a fabulous uh, reference. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, and and of course the he is Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Was made manifest in the last times. Was, past tense, made manifest. When? In the last times. For whose sake? For the sake of those who are receiving this letter. So we, we, we are in the last days, we have been in the last days, as I've said to you several times, there will be some last days to the last days, but we have been in the last days since uh, the ascension and since Jesus' enthronement uh, as, as the king of glory. So, just another implication. Jesus as the final and perfect Uh, revelation of God, he is the word we listen to. His word is the word we listen to. These are the last days, leading us at the end of these last days to the eternity that God uh, intends for his people to enjoy in the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so God's final revelation. Any, Any, everybody okay with that? Any question about that? Okay. God's heir. This is um, this is fun to think about. Again, can I, can I just take us back to Psalm 2 and have you look at Psalm 2 again and then a couple of New Testament passages. Psalm 2, verses uh, 7 and following. 6 and following. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, 
I will tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is that, this is that little conversation among the persons of the Godhead, the Father, speaking to and speaking about the Son and, and saying to the Son that he, he is going to give to the Son an inheritance. And what is that inheritance? A people. A people. It's you, right? You are the Son's inheritance. Isn't that... I mean... That's a pretty pathetic inheritance from my perspective. Not about you, but you know, about me. But that is the inheritance that the Father intends for the Son to have. And, and the language that gets used, we saw it in John chapter 3, the language that gets used to describe that inheritance that the Father will give to the Son is the language of a marriage. The bride and the bridegroom. The Father's I mean, this is lovely. The father's great passion and desire is to give his son a bride, pure, spotless, without blemish, a bride in whom the son will delight forever and ever. That's the son's inheritance. You are the son's inheritance. This people from every race, nation, tribe, and tongue. But the cool thing about this is is sort of the multi-layered nature of it, because you are not only the inheritance the Son will receive because of the intention of the Father, but you actually, with Jesus, will yourselves inherit and be heirs with Jesus. Uh, Romans 8, and you know, this, I'm not going to do this, I don't have enough time, I think I'll be dead before I could do it. I'd love to go back and start Romans over again. Because there's just, I mean, there is this movement through the book of Romans to this, just to this incredible crescendo in chapter 8. I mean, you, you know, you deal with sin in those early chapters and then Jesus and his sufficiency in chapter 3, verses 20 and, and following. And then, and then faith is the instrument by which we receive the incredible blessings that Jesus secures for us. And then chapter 5 begins to unpack and unfold how those blessings apply to us personally, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access by faith into this grace in which we are firmly planted, never to be uprooted ever again. And then goes on to to elaborate and unpack this idea that we're united to Christ, we're in Christ, we have a new husband. The old husband was the law that just beat us up and treated us badly, but now we have a new husband, Jesus, who loves us and delights in us. And then, then, you know, you move into chapter 8 and there's the blessing of the Spirit, that we've been given the Spirit who now dwells within us and walks with us and enables us. And you get to these... These verses 12 and following were debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. All of those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God. 
You see, you hear the crescendo, how it's just rising from, from forgiveness to union with Christ to, to confidence about a final victory over sin. And then this language of adoption, that we're children, we're sons and daughters of God. And then verse 15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. So what is Christ going to inherit? He's going to inherit you. He's going to inherit everything. What are you going to inherit if you're a fellow heir with Jesus? One another. And everything. And then Paul goes on to talk about the the creation being liberated from its curse. Being finally freed from its curse and its bondage to decay. What's, you know, what are you going to inherit? New heaven, new earth. You know, I mean, so... This idea of being an heir, Jesus as God's heir, um, the one who inherits from him um, everything that the Father desires to give him, that, that includes you. You know, you're gathered up, you're taken up into that. And that's, you know, I, I keep making this point, but I'm, I just, I, 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 in, in the sermons, I, I just, I'm just continually sort of impressed by the future orientation of the scriptures. The future orientation of the gospel. Right? Where do I fix my gaze? I'm tempted to fix my gaze on the present, right? But repeatedly, in one way or another, the scriptures constantly summon me to fix my gaze on something future, something out in front of me, something yet to come, something yet to be realized, something so exceedingly above and beyond all I could dare to imagine or possibly think of. And it, and it is that. It is that inheritance in and with Jesus of a new heaven and a new earth and all of the blessedness and joy of it. So, Jesus is God's heir. Jesus is the agent of creation. We don't, we, we've just read uh, John 1, verses 1 through 3 a little bit ago. Uh, Jesus is the word, the one through whom and by whom everything that exists came into existence. All right, that's uh, John 1, 3 or 4. Um, and again, you think back to the creation, the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep, and then God speaking, and how word and spirit come together to bring things into existence and then to bring order out of chaos, to fill up emptiness with the glory of God, to drive away darkness, word and spirit. Who, who is the agent of creation? Jesus is present as the age of creation, at agent of creation, bringing everything into existence. And then Jesus is God's exact image and glory. You, we get a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, window into next week's sermon. Peter both understood and didn't understand when he said, it's good to be here. Let's build booths. I'll, I'll, I'll unpack this more next week, but, but you know what the booth thing is? 
It's a reference to the last of the great feasts in Israel, the Feast of Booths, right? And what, so what was the Feast of Booths? It was the culmination of, it was the celebration of the ingathering of the final harvest. What's Peter want to do? He wants to go to glory. He wants to go to glory. See, he's getting it. Things are coming into perspective for Peter. Peter's understanding, this is a good place to be. This is the place my heart longs for. Right? What is it that Peter doesn't get? The cross. Ah, Jesus, this is a good thing. Let's just avoid the cross business and stay here. But the cross, right? The cross comes before the crown. The cross comes before the crown. And it's interesting. I think it's, uh, I think it's in Matthew's account. I'm not sure. Maybe Luke's. But it's interesting when they come, come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the first thing they encounter is a demon-possessed boy. Right? Now, there's more work to be done. There's more work to be done because the evil one has yet to be fully crushed under the feet of the serpent crusher. And where does the serpent get crushed? At the cross. At the cross. So we got to go down from the mountain before we can enjoy the glory that Jesus is and that we are made for. Jesus then um, is God's agent of providence. He upholds all things by the word of his power. This is a challenging one, folks. What does all things refer to? All things, I think. I think it refers to all things. This is very, very tough. Very, very tough. When you read about difficulty and heartache and tragedy and all of the brokenness and stuff that occurs in the world and all the mean and nasty things that one person does to another or that nations do to one another, who is the sustaining power upholding everything in the midst of all of that? It's Jesus. We can't, we can't retreat from affirming that Jesus is God's agent of providence, meaning that he is the one who is ordering and guiding and directing, sustaining all things, everything, for the glory of God and for the ultimate good of his people. Jesus is the agent of providence, upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is God's agent of redemption. Um, After making purification for sins, right? Making purification for sins. What's that all about? Well, you know what that's all about. That's all about Jesus, as we said this morning, coming in fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types and pictures. Uh, Jesus coming to be the great high priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, for the sins of his people, so that by his sacrifice, his people might be, in fact, pure. Don't you love that? After offering purification for sins, cleansing, purifying. Boy, those are sweet words. Okay, and then lastly, um, he is God's agent of rule. Um, he, He has been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
Boy, there's just a ton of passages we could go to to, to, um, to illustrate that, to provide proof texts for that. Um, but the, the, the point is that the writer of this letter sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, governing all things. So let me just make this point, make it fairly frequently. We're not waiting for a coming king. He's here. We're not waiting for him to begin his rule. He's ruling. Um, And he is ruling over everything, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth and having been seated at the right hand of uh, the majesty on high. So, the excellence of Jesus as God's final revelation in all of the rest of these things. Okay? That's the text, basically, that the writer is going to continue to unpack through the rest of these uh, chapters. Um, and he begins to unpack that um, in speaking about angels. And we'll, we'll um, talk about this uh, a little more next week. But um, his first application of this text is to the angels. And I just have you note that the writer proves his point from the scriptures of the Old Testament with both texts and with a structure. And, and by that I mean he structures his scriptural argument, proving that Jesus is superior to the angels, by citing seven different Old Testament passages. I just think that's striking. What is seven? It's the number of fulfillment. It's the number of completion, right? So he cites seven Old Testament passages. You can see them. Um, I've, I've put them in the notes there for you, the, the, the Hebrews uh, passage and the Old Testament uh, reference. Again, to underscore with respect to angels that Jesus is superior to them. And one of the things that you'll see, uh, particularly verse 6, um, you will see that the angels are called upon to worship the firstborn who is brought into the world. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And the implications of that are significant because where we're led to, in addition to all of this, all of this stuff, we're led by a passage like that to the inescapable conclusion that Jesus is not only God's final revelation and self-disclosure, his heir, his agent of creation, the exact image and glory of God. He is, in fact, God. He is, in fact, God. How do we know that? Because the writer of this letter is a good Jew. And a good Jew knows the only proper object of worship is God. Is God. See, and I, I think actually, in the midst of all of the other confusion and craziness that there is in, in the Jehovah Witnesses thing and in the Mormon thing, the fatal flaw in their own system, whether, whether Mormon theology or Jehovah's Witness theology, the fatal flaw in their theologies is that Jesus is a created being. And they are encouraged to worship him, which means their own system is internally inconsistent and incoherent because they're engaged in idolatry. 
So the next time you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, have them talk to you about Jesus and the fact that he's a creature, and then ask them, do they worship him? And see if you can get engaged in a conversation with them, or with a Mormon, right? Because they're actually, in their own system, they're engaged in idolatry, because they view Jesus as a created being. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews, in addition to all the rest of this stuff, understands Jesus to be worthy of our worship, the worship of angels, and consequently, our worship. Okay, so, first application of the text, Jesus more excellent than the angels. Okay? All right, I did it. First time in history. We actually have ten minutes, seven, eight minutes for some questions or comments. Yeah, go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Bill. My the the question is um, the, the use of the word air. When when we uh, think of the word air, the obvious connotations are the, the meaning of the term is is that the the person the person from whom we inherit has died, and God does not. Die. So how how does that word work? Um, I guess I'd say two things. Number one, um, language. All language is is metaphor. In a, there's a sense in which it's always it's always being used to point to something sort of larger and greater than. Than, than itself, than the word itself. So words, I mean, God uses words and images to convey truths, right? And, and God employs this, this word to convey not that he's going to die someday and, and because he's going to die, Jesus is going to inherit what is his, but he uses the word, I, I think, to express this idea that he, that he is lavish in showering upon those whom he loves the, the full riches of everything that he possesses, right? So, you know, human language, always, it, there's always a sense in which it approximates the things to which it points. So I'd say those two things, that, that when we're, we're, to, we're to understand the positive side of what's being you know, employed in, in the use of language like that, which is God's pleasure in lavishing upon his son and those who belong to his son the limitless riches of his, uh, of his kingdom and, and blessings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, yes. Even though he may not have 
Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and, and um, um, I, I think connected to that is this, I, we, you know, we, we kind of make this subtle distinction between, between, between God's people as sons, which was a special designation, right? Not, not a generic term, or a, a, not a, a gender term, but actually a term that referred to status, as, as you've, you've said. We are, so, we are children, which, which addresses the, the filial and familial side of things. We have a father who loves us, but, uh, but we are also in this privileged position as sons to inherit his, um, his kingdom. And, you know, it just occurs to me, this probably should have been the first thing said, and I'll get you all in your comments, there actually is a death involved when it comes to this inheritance. And it is the death of the one who dies, you know, who actually is the heir. There is a death so that we then, by virtue of his death, become heirs of the father's estate. It's not quite the same thing, but obviously, um, you know, there is a death involved in this. Zach, yep, Zach, you had Zach and then Gene and then, and then Bruce. Yeah. 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 Gene. Yeah, great point. Yeah, 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 great, great point. Yeah, great point. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah, that's true, and and but you have to be careful with that, and of course the yeah you, right right. I mean that's why the you know the early church the the church fathers went through these these sort of intellectual gymnastics to try to describe this relationship among the persons of the Godhead, right? That the Father exists eternally, and the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. So there is a primacy of the Father, and there's a subordination of the Son, and the Spirit eternally proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. That's the kind of language, you know, it's, it's that sort of thing. I mean, you're, you're touching on something that's really true. There is, among the persons of the Godhead, there is an economy, right? There is the primacy of the Father, there is the subordination of the Son to the Father, and then there is the Spirit who, who eternally proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. So, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, hey, uh, Ray, I'm going to let somebody else ask a question since you made a comment just a little bit ago, okay? All right. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, Bev.
So So it's an invitation to come to the women's Bible study on Thursday. <laughs> but only if you're a woman. Yeah. Yeah, Lori and then then Ray the last one. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Great, great questions. Yeah, um, can we kind of take those up next week? I'm going to actually have some stuff to say about that, but I think part of it is that angels do feature fairly prominently in in the life of of the the pilgrim people, right, of the Jewish nation as it's making its progress from Egypt to the Promised Land, and I, and and they're. There was kind of an interest in angels and the role of angels and how they functioned and what they did. And, and so, you know, how do, because they're, I mean, you, you know, you think about Old Testament passages, whether it's their, their role actually in leading the nation through the wilderness or, or later in, in, in a place like Daniel, for example, when, when Gabriel speaks. And, I mean, there's this sort of fascination with, with these angelic beings, Right. So, how does this? Yeah. How does Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. Relate. Yeah. Yeah. So, angels figure very prominently in Old Testament theology, and New Testament theology, actually. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And what was the thing about the sun? Oh, did they have a hard time with that? Yeah. Yeah, sit in my, right. Just like we do. How do I make the math work? One, three, three, one, what is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, last comment, and then we'll, unless there's somebody else. Right. from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before, and so I say again now, if a man is, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Yowza, 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 yowza. Yep, there you go. Scary. Yep. What they look like. Passages that describe what angels look like. And gosh. Not 
on my knowledge. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, Isaiah 6, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 seraphim and the cherubim the the have, you know, these the the seraphim are the ones that fly around the throne and cover their eyes and cover their feet and fly and so Isaiah 6 would be that'd be a place to start. And you can just kind of cross-reference from there and and go, but but they're clearly they're they are beautiful and glorious. Good, you know the, the 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 good guys, the good angels. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know if else would be, but I would like to purchase a Bible that was uh, both the Hebrew translation and then, you know, like a, a, a good translation, so that I could compare the two. Because such a Bible that would have both in one would look like two Bibles. You mean you want the you want the Hebrew text? You want a Hebrew Bible? I was going to be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that gives the translation, the Hebrew words, more so I, I, here's, here's a suggestion. The Blue Letter Bible. It's an online Bible, and uh, it's a tool that enables you actually to look at the Hebrew text and the literal definitions of words. Okay. Blue Letter Bible. It's an online resource. There you go. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray. So we're into it. We're into it. We've had to kind of gloss chapter one, but you just have to do that when you're trying to do something in about 11 weeks. So let's pray. Lord, be with us as we go. We, we asked you that you would uh, earlier and, uh, and ask you again that you would, that you would accompany us uh, just as you accompanied uh, the nation Israel in its exodus and then its wandering in the wilderness until you brought them uh, to their home. Uh, Would you accompany us, walk with us, defend and protect us, uh, keep us from every harm and and provide for every need, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.